Good afternoon. I'm Judy Langhans from the Office of Professional Nursing in the Center for Continuing Education. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our January session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'd also like to welcome anyone who is viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. Please be sure to sign in on the attendance sheet and you must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. For those viewing online, please email me with any questions you may have during the presentation. My email is judith.m, as in May, dot langhands at hitchcock.org, and also email me within one hour after the presentation with your name, degree, and postal zip code stating that you watched today's presentation. Everyone will receive a link to an online evaluation by the end of the day. The Center for Continuing Education greatly appreciates your feedback and hopes you take a few moments to complete the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month, and there are instructions on how to access your online transcript over by the sign-in sheet, or you can contact me. And finally, please silence your cell phone and pagers. Our presentation today is entitled Pain Assessment and Management of Older Adults. Our speaker is Dr. Margot Krasnoff, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and a physician in general internal medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. I'd like to welcome Dr. Krasnoff. Oh, thank you very much, Judith. Um, welcome, everybody. And I'm here today to talk about pain assessment and management, just because this is something that we all, those of us in, in clinical practice, deal with, and it can present many challenges. Uh, my background is that I work here in general internal medicine. I'm also board certified in geriatrics. So a lot of, I do have a lot of older patients in my practice. I'm also the medical director of Hanover Terrace, which is one of our local skilled nursing facilities. So I'm involved with pain assessment and management in that population. I'm also board certified in hospice and in palliative medicine. So I have a particular interest in the end of life and having uh, people be comfortable at that time. And I will welcome questions. I'm going to try to save some time at the end. Although before I get started, uh, are there any particular areas or questions that people had in terms of why they came to the um, session today, in terms of things they wanted to have answered, just to make sure that I do cover it? No? Okay. I'll move along there. I've made three main objectives. The first is I want to describe some pain assessments in older adults which are tailored to their cognitive status. So the first point being is you have to know what their cognitive status is to have an appropriate uh, management plan. Next, I want to talk about the behavioral signs of pain in elders who have dementia and other communication issues. And third, I want to talk about new guidelines for the safe administration of acetaminophen. And in some of the slides, I have that abbreviated APAP just to fit the word in. Um, but there's a lot of new information about uh, Tylenol, and that's important just in terms of counseling people um, either in a hospital setting or also at home because I know some of you have uh, different roles uh, in the audience here. One of the first challenges we face is that how do we manage pain when the patient can't tell us that they're in pain? And we know that pain and dementia have potential overlap in their expression. Sometimes patients could be agitated, confused, or they might just have depressed mood or apathy. 
And I will go over a management algorithm that takes both pain and dementia into account. This is a picture of a patient of mine named James. And I think it makes the point pretty clearly that pain really affects function in the elderly. That if you're in pain and you hurt, you're not going to get up, you're not going to push the walker, you're not going to walk down the hall and get your daily exercise. So it becomes a vicious cycle of pain leading to decreases in activity, leading to frailty. So um, it's really our role to try to assess the patients when they're not moving to help figure out if it's pain that's keeping them from uh, doing their daily activity. Um, I also want to make the point that I'm going to be talking about how pain has both a sensory component and an emotional component. So as you look at the slides and see the pictures, you can realize, you know, like this fellow sitting there with his hands over his head, you know, he, he may be sad, tired, but just to think of the emotional um, experience of pain. And here we have the um, opposite scenario where we have the patient who's striking out. And we see this a lot in long-term care settings, also in the hospital. So when patients start to act out, we have to ask, is it because it's the underlying disease? You know, is it the dementia getting worse? Or are they in pain and they just can't tell us why? And that's why they're striking out. Do they have a new infection? And it's something that's also very common uh, in our elders. So in terms of pain being both a sensory and emotional experience, this patient certainly, to me, she looks upset, she looks frustrated. And the caregiver seems calm, she's smiling, kind of grasping her hand and maybe trying to redirect her. So I want to start out uh, with the case of Stanley, and I'll be talking about a number of cases today. And he was an 86-year-old uh, gentleman who was a new resident at a long-term care facility. And the reason that he was admitted was that he was hitting his wife not just once, but repetitively. And he weighed about 50 pounds more than she did, and he was starting to hurt her. Um, the other thing he did was he was escaping the house, basically just going out the back door, and no one could find him. And his primary care doctor started treating him with Seroquel in increasing doses to see if that could calm his agitation, and it was not effective. Um, he was known to have knee pain and back pain, and he was treated with Tylenol at a dose of 1,000 milligrams four times a day. Um, but it got to the point where neither the wife, um, just she just couldn't handle him at home anymore. So she brought him in uh, for admission. And uh, he was assessed by the nurse, and she didn't see any signs of any uh, painful skin conditions. He did not have a urinary tract infection. So um, in terms of what would be the next step, the, I work with a nurse practitioner. Um, at Hanover Terrace named Barbara Maloney, who some of you may know, and she's fabulous. And when people have untreated, her, her assumption was that some of the behavior might be due to untreated pain. So she had a couple of ways to go. One would be to start with a short-acting opiate, and that would be kind of your typical um, traditional thinking. But being the skillful nurse practitioner that she is, uh, she decided to go with a low-dose fentanyl patch. And we'll talk a little bit later on about fentanyl patches and some of their roles in elders. But you put them on the lowest strength, 12 milligrams every 72 hours. And it really, it worked like a charm. That like within 48 hours, he started to be much more calm, directable. He wanted to interact with people and go out to do activities. And the family was like amazed that here was this guy who was like a swinging kind of out of control person who probably was in untreated pain and just couldn't express that pain to others. 
and he was monitored really closely because it's a little bit um, not a usual thing to put people on a long-acting opiate as their initial opiate. But he's watched very closely, and he did not have any um, signs of any respiratory depression. Um, his pulse ox was monitored. That was fine. He really did quite well. And um, it's now, oh, at the same time that the long-acting opiate was started, he was put on Senecot S, so he didn't have any problems with constipation. And it's now two years later, and he's actually quite sociable and interactive uh, in the context of his dementia, and his fentanyl dose has been increased over the course of two years just to 50 micrograms. Um, his acetaminophen dose was appropriately decreased. We want to have elders at less than 3,000 milligrams a day, so he's on a total of 2,600 milligrams a day. And interestingly, his Seroquel dose was reduced. Uh, we often find when people get into long-term care that we try to decrease those neuroleptics. That's one of our early targets. And um, he currently, rather than taking 300 milligrams a day all in one dose, he now just takes 100 milligrams over the course of a whole day. So he has 25 milligrams at noon, 25 in the morning, and 50 at night. So I want to make the point about untreated pain. Undertreated pain can often be manifest as aggression. To be mindful about that. So in terms of a definition of pain, I really like this website. <laughs> if people are into doing pain, I know a lot of you are involved in teaching students. Um, the International Association for the Study of Pain, it's really an excellent website. And they define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that is associated with actual or threatened tissue damage or is described in terms of such damage. So sometimes there actually isn't a tissue damage, but that's how the patient uh, describes it. So as we all know, pain is a sensory, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an individual uh, experience. And it's very hard for us as healthcare providers to kind of prejudge how much something is going to hurt um, our patient. And so there's basically a physiological stimulus, but it is definitely filtered through the life experience of the patient. So there's all an emotional, everyone has their own kind of emotional pain history in terms of how they were brought up to think about pain, um, how their pain was responded to um, in the past. But we can all think of the experience of smashing our finger in either the kitchen drawer or the car door. Okay, now I, I, I've done this in the last six months. So what often will happen, like the, the kitchen, you know, you're, you have your finger in the drawer, you shut it because you think you're done, but oh no, there it is. So like most of us, it hurts, but we also often swear, even though we don't intend to swear, and it could be kind of embarrassing, depending on who's around you, but there's a tendency to swear because you have this kind of unpleasant, unpleasant affective uh, reaction to the experience. So um, there's often the emotion that people experience of anger, like with the finger in the drawer, it's kind of like, oh, why did I do that? You know, how silly or stupid. Um, but for significant pain, it's often fear. Like if you fall down on the ice and you, you, know, you feel pain in a limb, you're like, uh-oh, you know, did I break my leg? Do I have a subdural hematoma? So like fear kicks in uh, right away. So um, everyone be really careful on the ice out there. Yeah, for sure. So um, anyway, I do recommend that website if you want to do some teaching with learners about pain. And in terms of descriptions, we know that our patients use a whole variety of words. And sometimes it helps us to listen really carefully to what they're saying to try to help categorize the pain because different underlying conditions are treated differently. 
And some of the broad categories are nociceptive pain, and we think of this typically as the pain of degenerative arthritis. And most, most elders do have some experience of degenerative arthritis. People describe it as sharp, sometimes as tender, um, deep, aching pain. Visceral pain is the pain of biliary obstruction or kidney stone. People tend to describe spasms, cramping, or colicky, just kind of spasms of pain that comes and goes. And elders often have neuropathic pain. And they're going to describe this with a totally different vocabulary. They'll talk about shooting pain, burning, stabbing, pins and needles, numbness, those types of words. And of course, there's also inflammatory pain, there's vascular pain. But for the basic ones we're going to focus on today is the nociceptive pain. Actually, that's where we'll really put our emphasis, because we've used some different pathways uh, with neuropathic pain. And of course, people don't you know, read these books when they come in. They'll talk about pains you know, in all of the above. But as I listen, I do try to, try to um, determine in my mind what the etiology is in terms of uh, what they're describing. We know from clinical studies that the experience of pain is really pervasive in our elders, that a very large percentage experience chronic conditions that may manifest themselves with acute or chronic pain. And these pains come and go. I mean, from your sciatica, actually I have a slide later on with all the different uh, causes of pain. We also know that pain, a lot of elders will assume that pain is a normal experience of aging and they don't want to talk about it too much. Sometimes if their family members are around, they definitely won't talk about it because they don't want to give their families any leverage to like take any action or control over their life. So if that means underreporting their pain, they, they won't tell you about it. So sometimes I get a totally different story when the daughter is in the room or when the daughter is not in the room. Um, in terms of prevalence in ambulatory settings, people about 50% will report pain. In long-term care, it's about 85%. And we know that people who have cognitive impairment are at risk for, one, not reporting their pain, and as a result of that, for not getting adequate analgesia. So we have to keep that in mind uh, when we're assessing those patients. This was the long list. But I do want to make um, some points about some of these conditions. So as I said, um, at least 50% of elders that we see in the outpatient setting are experiencing pain, most commonly from their degenerative joint disease, their spinal stenosis. The pain from fractures could be with the acute fracture or the bone heals, but they still have pain uh, in that area. Um, we see a lot of radiculopathy. Now in terms of suprapubic pain, people don't usually come in and say, I have suprapubic pain. But they'll talk about, I have a dull ache or a pressure. And then we have to be really mindful of the fact that urinary retention is seen in our elders. And we have bladder scanners, and we can check and see. Um, constipation. Constipation and urinary retention go hand in hand. And constipation often makes um, a lot of discomfort. Cancer, as we know, can have many causes of pain. And in fact, that's one of the things that people are afraid, frightened about when they experience pain, because they'll know someone who had pain, and that was the first sign of cancer. So we always have to be mindful about um, malignancy kind of in the background. We know post-stroke syndromes can be painful. Uh, pressure ulcers are hurt. And this is where we just have to be really cognizant of the fact that skin, skin conditions can hurt quite a bit. Improper positioning can occur when people are just kind of left in one place, 
and they get pressure on their limbs. And this happens quite a bit at home. Um, I think in facilities and hospitals, people are aware of it, but not so much um, when they're treated at home. And I want to talk about teeth because 15 years ago, when you took care of our elders in there in the hospital or in skilled nursing, they didn't have their teeth. Everyone had dentures. Nowadays, dentures are not as common as they once were, which is a good thing um, because people have had more dentistry and they've been able to keep their teeth. But the problem is, particularly as they get dementia, is they don't take care of their teeth. And when you open their mouths, I don't know about you, but I've always seen um, caries, I'm seeing chipped, broken teeth. Um, it's a real problem. These teeth hurt. Um, and these broken teeth and are a reason why people don't eat. Um, they're not getting good nutrition. If you don't get new, good nutrition, you tend to lose weight. So it's something that, you know, I see a lot of patients with dementia in the office, and I'm always talking with them and their families to encourage dental hygiene. Oftentimes people, because of finances, they don't go to the dentist for a while, but it's an area where you can really have a significant impact. And um, a lot of the dentists are really tuned in and gentle, you know, taking care of older people, particularly people with dementia. And it's, I'm not talking about getting into implants and fancy stuff, but like, you know, routine um, preventive dentistry does have a role even in seniors and in seniors with dementia. So, I think I'm ready for a drink of water. Yeah. Acute pain. And here's where self-report is the gold standard. And this is kind of, I think we're all pretty good with acute pain. Um, it's associated with surgery, trauma, acute illness. Um, as we know, it's always subjective and we have to listen to and believe the patient. And just I want to make the point again that underreporting is pretty common in seniors because they'll sometimes be kind of fatalistic and think, well, pain is part of getting older. I have an 82-year-old mother, and this is her new mantra, actually, <laughs> that pain is part of getting older, you know, when this thing hurts or that thing hurts. So there can be this under-reporting. Under, uh, but when we're thinking about acute pain, it's time-limited. This is the person who breaks their arm, they get it in a cast, and the acute pain's going to get better. So we can kind of coach the people through the acute pain. Now, I just want to mention that elders respond to opioids as well as younger people do, but they have usually a very exaggerated fear of becoming addicted to opioids. And we have to do education that it's okay, you broke your arm, you could take oxycodone, um, that I don't think taking a Tylenol is gonna really be sufficient for your pain. But this is where going with very low doses, and it gives them confidence. If you say, you know, I think the five milligrams we're gonna work up to the five milligrams, but tonight I want you to cut it in half and take 2.5 right when you get home. So, I mean, I even have to be very specific about the PRNs, that it's not PRN when they think about it, but it means tonight, you know, you broke your arm, you must take the medication. But usually they'll kind of relax when, you, when I tell them they're not gonna become a drug addict, they're not gonna take it forever, it's just to get them through the acute pain. Now, persistent pain is kind of the new term instead of talking about chronic pain. Because we all know if we refer to someone as a, quote, a chronic pain patient, that has a lot of negative connotations. So I think persistent pain is good. It kind of lightens it up. And it, it re describes that the pain is, in fact, persistent. 
And it's persistent because either the cause of the pain cannot be removed or otherwise treated. So the pain persists. And it might be associated with a long-term incurable or intractable medical condition or disease. So for example, a cancer patient who has a bony metastasis. That could be a persistent pain. Or the pain of lumbar spinal stenosis can be a persistent pain. It may wax and wane. Um, and the other thing that's really important for us as healthcare providers is that the persistent pain can occur in the absence of a demonstrable tissue pathology. So someone's back can hurt, but their x-ray can kind of look, quote, okay. But their x-ray, just because their x-ray looks okay, if they have pain, they still have pain. And so we want to avoid some of the negative attitudes and stereotypes uh, that come along with someone being a chronic pain patient. Now, you can't talk about pain without talking about depression. And I made this slide because I think these are both what I call mutually exacerbating conditions. That having pain makes your depression worse, and having depression makes your pain worse. So at the same time that we're assessing and managing pain, we have to be thinking about assessing for depression. Um, because on the one hand, if someone says they're in pain, and I just give them pain medications, but they're also depressed, their pain is not that likely to get better. So sequentially, I mean, actually, you have to address both at the same time. Um, and so we have to, uh, in terms of being holistic about managing pain, we have to assess and manage depression. We also have to assess and manage anxiety. And we have to think about sleep impairment. Because people who are in pain often are not sleeping well. Then when you're not sleeping well, you tend to get more depressed. So this is complex work that we do. I think from my experience of um, many years of being um, in the hospitalist role, that we tended to just treat pain as pain without necessarily looking and addressing the depression and the anxiety. But certainly in the outpatient world, it's really important uh, that we do that. And also, I'm going to talk about Payne's signature in a, in a few slides. But just take a look at his face. I was holding his, his hand right up there to his, his face. Because everyone has their own pain signature. And in, particularly in people who are not that verbal, they might do something. So they might, um, you know, like when, if he's sitting there going like this, you know, we think of that, oh, if we had a headache, you know, we might do that. But sometimes for elders who can't talk to us very well, they will have a particular act, uh, um, position that they hold their body when they're uncomfortable. And they'll do it over and over again. And this is where um, caregivers are so amazing, because they, they know how to interpret uh, the pain signatures. So in terms of what we know from research about pain assessment in elders, the pain thresholds are the same as in, old, as in younger people. So if you, let's say, touch uh, a flame, you know, all those sensory neurons are, are the same. The pain pathways in both the peripheral and the central nervous systems are the same. But we do know that the cortical processing of pain impulses can be altered. And that's usually like a slowing of time. Um, and also how the person perceives the uh, pain. As I've said before, the ability to express pain is definitely altered in dementia. And we know that people who have dementia can have these atypical behaviors and reactions 
uh, to the experience of pain. And we also know that um, when we give people opiates, uh, particularly elders get higher concentrations of the drug at the receptor site. And as a result of that, they sometimes can have some unusual behaviors in response to the medication. So in other words, uh, more delirium, more nightmares, um, lethargy, for example, in response to the same dose that you would, wouldn't necessarily see that in a younger person. Um, if we undertreat pain, some of the consequences can include agitation, physical combativeness, uh, such as hitting loved ones or staff, uh, verbal aggression, disruptive behaviors. We see this quite a bit in the hospital and in at home where people who are uncomfortable just refuse to do things. They won't get up. They won't work with physical therapy. Um, or they kind of refuse care. They don't want to be bathed. They don't want to go along with what the caregiver wants them to do. Um, sometimes we see wandering, certainly disturbs sleep, and the things that we are very concerned about is depression, social withdrawal, isolation uh, as a result of pain. Now, some tips for pain assessment in elders. One is that you got to keep it simple. And often trying to frame the question in terms of a yes, no answer can help. And we have to recognize that people are in the moment. We got to use the present tense. Sometimes we'll ask people, well, have you had pain over the last five days? They can't remember the last day, much less five days ago. So, you know, have you had pain this morning? Um, does it hurt right now? Tell me, yes or no. I mean, you have to really kind of lay it out. Um, the other thing is that, and I'm guilty of this, is that we have to give patients enough time to think about it and answer. Uh, particularly sometimes if we're spending a lot of time looking down and clicking at EDH, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we don't necessarily have eye contact with the person as we ask these questions, but we do have to, and if you actually look at them while we're asking the question, we can see that, you know, they're thinking about it. It might just take them a moment to answer. So I try when I'm asking pain questions to make sure that I look up and establish the eye contact. I mean, I notice more and more with the emphasis on clicking as we go, that there is less eye contact with people. And I think it's a real problem in the pain assessment area. The other thing is that we have to repeat these questions. Just asking once is not enough. So I might ask once. If I don't believe the answer, I might ask again, ask a different way. So repetition, things can change. So here's some more questions. Have you had pain? Sometimes people will say, no, it's not pain. Well, have you had hurting? Have you had aches, discomfort, kind of finding their word? And then asking for how much of the time. Um, I see that my uh, wonderful office nurse, Dawn, here, and I remember being just totally shocked with the patient who was having an oral cancer, and um, th there was a nurse, a note from one of the nurses on our team saying, patient having pain 20 out of 24 hours a day, and it was like, whoa, we have a pain emergency going on here. You know, this is not just 15 minutes of pain. This was pervasive, intense daily pain. So I've often not even like, well, how much did, how long did this episode last? But how, what part of your day are you in pain? Are you in pain all morning? Does pain make it hard for you to sleep at night? Very common in our elders. Has pain limited your day-to-day -day activities? Key question. Um, are you taking a scheduled pain medication? Because we know one of the interventions that really helps is having people take stuff on a regular basis. But if they're kind of catch as catch can, 
it's not going to be as effective as if they put medicine on a regular basis. In a hospital or facility, it's important to ask, was a PRN pain medication offered and declined? Or was it just on the MAR and only if the person, you know, you don't know as much, you know, if they're actually being offered it. So oftentimes I would write the order, please offer pain medication, you know, three times a day and allow, allow patient to um, decline, particularly if there's a cognitive problem. And are they using any non-medication interventions for pain? I'm talking a little bit more about that. Because sometimes people, you know, it's important to know, are they using their hot packs? Are they stretching? Are they applying ice? Are they applying some kind of topical remedy? So there's lots of ways that we can try to find out how that pain experience is going. Now, in the hospital, we're all trained to ask people about the 10-point numeric scale in terms of the no pain, moderate pain, severe pain. So um, everyone is really familiar with that. But um, here we have a problem with some elders with dementia where they get a favorite number. And no matter, this is, you may notice that with some of you do inpatient work, like their pain is always a five. It's like it's never a six, it's never a four, it's always a five. And um, so that, that becomes a problem because if, if I notice when I look at the MAR, if it's always the same number, it just makes me question, you know, how they feel about that number. I mean, there may be more going on. And I'll tell a little funny story about a patient at the nursing home named Ernie, who was a patient who had spent many years in and out of the VA. And so he always said his pain was a seven because the way the pain medicines are written, that if you're a seven, you get opiates. And if you're less than a seven, you don't get opiates. So he got a new roommate. And the roommate, the nurse came in and asked him, you know, how's your pain? And he said his pain was a three. And so, you know, like the nurse gave him a Tylenol. And then as the nurse was like standing at the med cart, she overhears Ernie coaching his roommate, <laughs> telling him, you gotta tell him it's a seven. Because if you tell him it's a seven, you'll get the good stuff. If it's a three, you're just gonna get Tylenol. So you do have to be curious if they always pick the same number. And um, sometimes one way around that is to ask them, so what's your favorite number? It's always the number that they've kept telling you. So you do have to be, um, yeah. People, we all have our favorite number, yeah. And so um, anyway, but think about Ernie sometimes. So uh, your verbal descriptor. Sometimes the numbers thing, people can't do with numbers. So we just go into, is your pain mild, moderate, severe, or terrible, horrible, you know, and that'll work. The FACES pain rating scale was really developed and validated in pediatrics. And the patient is supposed to select the picture that corresponds to how they feel. It's not really our role as nurses or doctors kind of looking at their face. Um, so it's useful in patients with aphasia. Um, and sometimes what we have to do with some of our patients is give them this but separate the number because the way it's set up, it has the numbers and the faces and uh, sometimes people just need to look at the face alone. Okay, this is this woman's pain uh, signature. So just to make the point that some people will like hold their face, other people will do, like they'll rub a body part. Um, they'll rub their arm or they'll pat their leg is another common pain signature. And a caregiver will say, when they pat their leg, that means it's time uh, for their pain medication. And other people will just curl up in a ball and won't do anything at all. So these tend to be like your own signature. These are personal, they're repetitive. And it's good to ask the caregivers and family before they leave if the patient does have any pain signatures. And certainly we're familiar with some of these behavioral manifestations. I wanted to talk about, some people will say, you know, help, help, help. 
Well, it actually sometimes means I hurt, I hurt, I hurt. Um, or they'll say ouch or stop, 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 stop. And that means that they're in pain. And some of the nonverbal sounds, we've got your crying, your whining, moaning, grimacing. In terms of our facial expressions, we, we talk typically about um, the furrowed brow, uh, wrinkled forehead, but also jaw clenching is another uh, facial expression that can manifest pain. Protective body movements are really important too to pick up on. By bracing, I'm talking about people who like make their body rigid. That can mean that they're in pain. Um, guarding, they, they, they're kind of covered up. They won't let you get near them. Uh, rubbing or massaging, I talked about. And also clutching, clutching, holding body parts uh, during movement. I figure, I know, I haven't looked at the med carts lately. Are you in the hospital using the pain AD for your in, for your nonverbal patients? No. No? What kind of scale are you using? Based on nonverbal uh -huh. numbers. Okay. Uh, well, this is used in a lot of research studies because it's kind of helpful just in terms of keying people into the, I think for particularly maybe new nurses, in terms of the range. You know, on your left, you have your uh, look assessing people's breathing, um, looking for labored breathing, hypoventilation, your negative vocalizations. Um, at a low level of pain, people don't do any. Um, and then you have your moaning or groaning. And then when people are in more pain, it's the repeated calling out, loud moaning, crying, um, facial expressions, which can vary from someone who has a either a smiling or an inexpressive face to someone who appears sad or into the facial grimacing. Body language, as I've mentioned, it can be either relaxed, can be tense, or it can get into the fist clenched, punching type scenario. And then consolability, I think is important to think about because there's a lot of patients you can console pretty easily with just kind of a, hi, how are you, kind of friendly touch. Um, some people, you can totally distract them in that way. But then there's some people who you cannot distract them. They are unconsolable. I would assume that that means that they're probably in quite a bit of pain. But they just can't tell you. In terms of geriatric pharmacology, we could talk about this for a long time. And it's one of my favorite topics. There's a really, if people want to learn more about it, there's a great review from American Geriatric Society in 2009. But we like to emphasize what we call multimodal therapy, that we're talking about combining always a pharmacological therapy with a non-pharmacological therapy. And in geriatrics, since there's so many side effects from medications, we really try to, I try to emphasize the non-pharmacologic things first. And this is where we get into our heat, our heating pads, our ice packs, gentle massage. So many of my patients benefit from going for massage. It's just, particularly I find people who've gone through a grief, they've lost um, a partner or have any big loss in their life, their body, when you touch it, it's generally like tight and in knots. And so if I can get them to go for a couple of massages just to have that gentle touch, I find it is amazingly beneficial and helps people to sleep better and relax. Um, relaxing music, something people can do, and it often just kind of brings comforts and relaxes. Um, and a lot of times people ask, well, I have arthritis pain. If I exercise, am I going to make it worse? I'm like, no, if you exercise, you're actually going to make it better because you're going to help to bring blood flow to the area. You're going to help relax. 
and it's you know good if you can tolerate it to please go ahead and try some physical activity. Um, sometimes people need to start out with activity in the water, particularly in warm water if they can get into a hot tub. CCB has a hot tub and just start moving. Uh, walking in the water can be very beneficial as well. So when we're looking at medications, we often try to use small doses and combine two or more medications with complementary mechanisms because they're going to usually work better for relief that rather than using a large dose of one medication. And people are probably familiar with the WHO pain ladder. Um, it's intended as something that could be used worldwide in all populations. And at the bottom of the ladder, we have mild pain. And it talks about using a non-opioid like acetaminophen or paracetamol is the word for Tylenol in other countries, um, aspirin or NSAIDs. And we don't use a lot of NSAIDs in seniors because of the effects on their kidneys and blood pressure. Um, the next rung up the ladder in terms of a stronger medication is an opioid. And here they list codeine, but we're not using codeine anymore because of problems with uh, metabolites. Um, tramadol or Ultram, uh, which we do use quite a bit. I'm going to talk about it on another slide. And uh, plus or minus an adjuvant. And so by adjuvant, we're talking about the heat, the cold, the, non, um, the other modalities. So these are kind of the mild opioids. And then we get up to the top with our strong opioids for moderate to severe pain. And this is where we're going to get into morphine and fentanyl. And I wanted to put this slide up so people could have a um, mindfulness about the cost of medications. Because there's a really striking difference up here in terms of what things cost. And we're um, oftentimes we have no idea um, until the patient goes to the drugstore and then calls us up with sticker shock, says, oh my god, did you know what that cost? So it's always helpful for us to know as a prescriber, certainly, um, what things cost. Is anyone in the room a prescriber, just so I know? Um, but just to have a general idea that if someone has acute pain and we're putting them on oxycodone, for example, that a month's supply would cost like $67. Ultram used to be quite expensive. It's not now. A uh, month's supply would be $44. Uh, methadone is something that if we had prescribers in the room, I might go into. I'm probably not, um, just in the context of time. But it's, a me it's an old-time medication, which is extremely inexpensive, and so that's uh, part of the role for it uh, when we're really in a very cost-conscious uh, uh, situation. That's for the methadone tablets. The methadone liquid is extremely expensive, and fentanyl patches are amazingly expensive <coughs> and kind of out of the range of, of many, many patients. So even though I used a fentanyl patch in the earlier example, that was someone who was in, um, under skilled care, and so it would have been covered in that context. On the other hand, there's a certain benefit to the fentanyl patch, particularly if there's a caregiver situation where you don't want someone taking pills during the day, you're not sure about compliance, et cetera, where the patch is on, it's labeled with the time, and then you know it's going to be on for the next uh, three days. So there's certain labor costs that sometimes uh, play in. I'm going to skip the slide about NSAIDs just to say that in general we don't recommend ibuprofen, Aleve, et cetera. Uh, for elders because of the adverse effects on blood pressure, heart failure, and on renal failure. Now, Tylenol 
I want to focus here because everyone is is familiar with Tylenol, and there are some new um, guidelines. In general, it's an extremely safe drug at the usual therapeutic doses, but lay people can underestimate its toxicity, except for some of my patients who I can't get to take a single Tylenol because they've heard that Tylenol is bad, and what do I know? And I'm telling them, no, it's actually okay, but they've heard about it, and they won't go near it. So in any case, in general, it's, it's safe. However, older people are at increased risk for acetaminophen toxicity compared to younger people. And the key point is that therapeutic or slightly excessive doses can be toxic to the liver in people who are susceptible. And in particular, this means people who are alcoholics. So we have to be extremely cautious in people who are alcoholics. And in terms of who also is at risk, it's people who are taking anticonvulsants and some of the herbal supplements. Now, acute alcohol ingestion is not a risk factor. If someone goes out on New Year's and has two drinks, I'm talking about the people who are drinking, say, well, for a woman, it could be someone who's drinking like four drinks a day. Um, you know, that, that's certainly excessive alcohol, uh, particularly in an older woman, and can lead to troubles with Tylenol. Um, and medications that can increase the enzyme system of the liver include, um, I mentioned anticonvulsants, in particular Tegretol, phenobarbital, and also some of the anti-tuberculosis drugs, INH uh, and rifampin. Now, Tylenol is all over. And some of the prescription meds have Tylenol in it, but the name doesn't say Tylenol in it, so people don't recognize that they are, in fact, taking acetaminophen. And so, for example, if you say to them, do you take Tylenol, they might say no. And then you see on their med list that they're taking Percocet, but they don't make that connection. So we have to do, all do a lot of education that Percocet and Endocet are actually oxycodone plus Tylenol. Obviously, Tylenol number three is pretty obvious. But then the Lortab and Vicodin um, also have, a, they contain acetaminophen. And one of the recent um, uh, changes is that it used to be that they could have 500 milligrams of acetaminophen per tablet, but now the maximum is 325 in these combinations. And then some people also take Fioracet, uh, which has Tylenol, and they take that for their migraine headaches. In terms of over-the-counters, uh, acetaminophen is in over 600 medications, and we see this in the pain category. So there's not just regular Tylenol, extra strength, Excedrin, in the sleep category, the Tylenol PM. And the fact that it's out there, this little vanilla caplets, and it looks so like, you know, just like mellow, it's really, really bad for seniors. And I have people, I have, we have a patient that on our team, he's, I try my darndest, but he takes three Tylenol PMs every night. I know. And he's, you're clearly not supposed to do that at all. And then he ended up recently having a syncopal episode, and finally, I think we've convinced him to stop taking it. But then we also have the cold preparations, your Alka-Seltzer Plus, your Sudafed, your Dristan, they all have Tylenol. So what I try to make the point is to not take more than one medicine at a time that contains acetaminophen. That's like my, try to, my basic point about this. And of course, there's no substitute for the brown bag or the Ziploc bag where people bring in all their medications and you get to see and educate just face to face about the Tylenol. But it's always a little bit of a shock to people. The new guidelines. 
It used to be that we could tell people that they could take 4,000 milligrams a day. Now, for the regular, I'm sorry, for the extra strength Tylenol, the maximum is 3,000 milligrams a day. For the regular strength Tylenols, the 325s, we used to tell people they could take up to four grams or 12 tablets, and now the recommendation is no more than 10 tablets in a day. The dose interval used to be every four to six hours as needed, and now it's recommended just every six hours as needed. This prevents some of that, what we call dose stacking of medication building up in their body. Um, I talked about how the dose in the fixed combinations has been reduced. And in long-term care, we no longer can give people even 1,000 milligrams at a time. The maximum is 650. So these are the new guidelines for people to be aware of. And I want to make the point that multiple prescribers can definitely increase the risk. Um, this is a patient in our, on our team, 80 years old. She went to the ED with shingles. She has mild cognitive impairment, so she forgot to tell them that she's taking Tylenol at home, and the emergency physician prescribed Percocet. So as her usual regimen, she takes Tylenol, 650 milligrams every eight hours. So that's a total of 1,950, so that's fine. She also is allowed to take one Percocet a day. And I have quite a few elderly patients where that's kind of their pain program. They can take one a day, and no matter what time of day it is, um, when their pain is bad, they can take one. And this lady is, she kind of goes by it, she doesn't run out early. I have quite a few people in this category and it seems to work. So just minding herself, she's at 2,275 milligrams a day, so all's well. But then she went to the ER <coughs> for her shingles and then she got put on two tablets every six hours, which in and of itself was a reasonable dose of 2,600 milligrams a day. But then when you add what she was already on, plus the new dose from the ER, then she's up to five grams a day, which is too much. So what I do personally is when I get these EDE reports and the medications, I'm always looking to see what's on it, then I know in my head what they're taking at home. And you know, in all due respect, the ED isn't necessarily gonna sit there and really add up the Tylenol doses on the med list, although I would make the point that they probably should. But when we are kind of double checking it uh, and doing kind of another med reconciliation, just as our outpatients, we have to be a bit of a sleuth uh, with the Tylenol. Ultram. Um, time for a drink of water. Now you guys start. I'm, in general, um, pretty impressed with Ultram in terms of its effects on a moderate uh, to severe pain, even though it's considered a weak opioid. So if someone doesn't take a lot of other medications and they have a pain problem and they don't, there's a reason why I don't want to put them on, a, on an opiate, I think Ultram is a reasonable choice. I started a low dose and increased it gradually, but there's a problem. It has a lot of drug-drug interactions and in particular, SSRIs. So if they're taking any SSRI at all, like Zoloft, Selexa, Lexapro, they cannot take Ultram with it because there's a risk of a serotonin syndrome, which can be very severe. It can also lower the seizure threshold, so anyone with a seizure disorder absolutely can't take it. And it can be addictive in a person who has a history of addictive tendencies or any kind of prior addiction, so you do have to be careful. But there is a role for it. Tips on using opioids, we'd like to start low and go slow. And we do have to recognize that elders may require 
and tolerate the same opioid dose as younger patients. So we have to have a, a bias against them in that regard. When we start opioids, we try to emphasize that it's just for a trial. Just because I start you on oxycodone doesn't mean I'm going to have you on oxycodone forever. It's just a trial. We're going to see how you feel, see if it helps you feel better, and we're going to monitor your mental status very closely. We also have to anticipate and recognize and treat side effects, such as constipation or tiredness. And we have to start some form of constipation management the same time that we start the opioids. Um, morphine, people are pretty familiar with. I'm going to actually skip this slide. Potential risks of opioids, increased risk of falls. This is a key problem with our elders, and they really have to emphasize this whenever uh, we have patients on opioids, sedation. And here we have the problem with patients who have cognitive impairment anyway, taking too much of their opioid. That's probably one of the biggest dangers. Um, and that's why I try to always set it up so that someone else is working with them, another family member, a pill planner, beyond a pill planner, an electronic pill planner. I mean, that we need some safeguard in there uh, if the person is having confusion. Uh, particularly with liquid preparations. I had a patient who had some kind of ENT surgery and she went home on like an oral morph liquid. She was in the ED within like three days with like serious obtundation. Now you're supposed to measure out like a quarter of a teaspoon of this and she just couldn't follow the directions. You know, a little is good, more is better. And it was a mess. So I'm like, I will not prescribe liquid opiates um, unless it's like in a hospice uh, type situation. And um, certainly delirium, depression, agitation, and then reduction in appetite is something we have to be very aware of. The fentanyl patch, um, I just wanted to make the point that this, you know, the models, they show you're like this really like bulked up guy, and like none of my seniors have any muscle mass, anything like this. Um, but there is a role for fentanyl. You know, we try to um, put it on the chest, back, flank or upper arm. For people with dementia, it's great to put it like in the upper back where they can't get at it, pick at it, or peel it off. Never on irritated or damaged skin. And it, they're very well tolerated. A very low uh, daytime drowsiness, very low incidence of constipation and confusion. Safe disposal of fentanyl. Um, there's a really big movement now to keep all drugs out of the water supply. So um, fentanyl should be always folded in half and put in the trash away from small children and pets. It should also be put in a container with kitty litter or coffee grounds to prevent people from reusing it. And I wanted to make the point that, in case people were not aware, that the local police stations in Hanover and Hartford now have opiate disposal units. So people can bring um, fentanyl patches there or if they end up with they don't take liquid medication, but other pills, they don't want to, you know, we don't want to put it into the septic system. Um, it can be safely put there 24 hours a day. These boxes are locked. So it's good for people just to know in terms of uh, these medicines out there in the community. So just to uh, get close to wrapping it up, I've got this pain assessment algorithm. So our first goal when we're assessing pain is to ask the patient, and go for their self-report. Then we have to look for the cause of the pain. We have to think about acute pain and chronic pain. Then we're going to observe their behaviors and use some type of pain assessment tool that we went over that's kind of 
tailored to their cognitive status. Talk to the caregivers, a key step. Get their report on how the patient's expressing their pain, how they're functioning. Then we attempt a trial of an analgesic with a titration. So we'll start at a certain dose and we'll make an agreement to either talk to us on the phone, we're gonna have an office visit, see how the pain is doing, how their function is doing, if they're able to be more active and um, engaged uh, with pain medication. And then we keep reassessing after each intervention. So we will start with a non-opioid first, depending on how that goes, we might add a short-acting opioid, and then depending on that, how that goes, we might go with that stronger opioid or a long-acting form. Safe prescribing. Clearly, we're gonna make sure that patients are safe. I wanna talk about a patient of mine who has mild dementia, and she lives in an assisted living, and she has really bad spinal stenosis. And she's had three epidural injections. Each one kind of helped, but then after a little bit of time, it would wear off. And she was very independent. And when you go to assisted living, the, uh, it's a big loss for a lot of people. You lose a lot of independence. But, and so a lot of my patients insist that when they go to assisted living, they must take their medications themselves, that they've done it their whole life, they know how to do it, they can do it well. And it's bad enough that they're going to assisted living, but give them that freedom. So we usually take a deep breath and let them do it. So she kept her Percocet in her room, and she was pretty good. Four times a day, 120 would last her the month. All was well. But then, three months in a row, she ran out early, and she couldn't explain why. She was insistent that the pharmacy was shorting her, the DH pharmacy, that they didn't know how to count out the pills, and they were making a mistake. So like the first month, I think I got snookered in, and we wrote a replacement prescription. And with the new guidelines, uh, when we do write a replacement prescription, we're recommended to write on it replacement, which is kind of a red flag for everybody, and I encourage people to do that. Um, so anyway, by the third month, we knew that there was something more going on. So at this point, I insisted that the facility give her the medication. And lo and behold, her pain got much better because she was, she was forgetting. She, you know, she was stacking up on doses. So suddenly, her pain level went from a seven down to like a two, and she went back to playing tennis. I mean, her functional, her functional status really improved. So like all, all was going really, really well. And then, 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 we had, so we had this new, oh, that was some of the possibilities, okay. Then we had this new pain plan where the facility nurse is dispensing. However, a year later, the facility called me up and said, you know, uh, we have a problem. Uh, one of the nurses uh, confessed to drug diversion and was terminated. So when we looked at the MARS, your patient wasn't actually getting the pills. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out uh, the nurse was substituting one pill for another and kind of taking advantage of the fact that the patient had a little cognitive impairment. So, um, so drug diversion is a big topic and it probably occurs more than we all know. And it can occur in facilities and it can occur in home too. So that's where doing urine drug tests every now and then is a really useful tool. And I tell, I, I present it to patients and their families. It's just a tool and that I, I bring it up that we, we do need to be aware. Obviously the person was terminated, you know, the person, the nurse lost her license, 
but we see drug diversion again and again and again. So obviously addiction um, and people having access to drugs and vulnerable adults is, can be a bad combination. Take home messages. Um, when cognitively impaired elders have changes in behavior, assess for pain as well as for infection, and we need to educate patients and their families about analgesics. We talk about how they're effective. We're looking for improvement in physical and emotional function. We have to be aware about safety and be aware about side effects. And then be, a, be aware of the potential for misuse um, and just to uh, alert people. But this, you know, we try to tell our patients that if they have caregivers coming in the home and they have opiates, those opiates should be locked up and that they should have access you know, and with the key. Because what we hear time and time again is, oh, you know, the caregiver took my medication and it becomes, it can become very problematic. Anyway, thank you. We have five minutes for questions. Yes. All right, um, in-house we're gonna start giving IV Tylenol. I have not heard about IV Tylenol. Yeah. What dose are you using? Oh, I haven't started it yet, but we're getting a heads up because it's coming because it's here, especially for um, um, orthopedic patients because they do their P6 mm -hmm. um, baseline uh, Tylenol. Uh huh. And uh, they start uh, IV with IV. So even when they're in the period before they can take PO, yeah. immediately post operatively. Yes. Yes. I mean, they would have the option of PO slash IV, but they do want this. Is yeah well it's good because it's a wonderful regimen you know for all all the post-op orthopedic people well thanks for letting me know hadn't heard about that good any other yes you mentioned the um, oxycodone dose can be the same in frail elders as young Yes, it can be. Does it have to be stretched out though? The, can, does it have to be more like six to eight hours instead of four to six to prevent that stacked up? Uh, I would say in general, yeah, because it can, things can be, I think what I meant to say by that is that it's not unusual. You could have an elder who requires 10 milligrams of oxycodone. Or when we look at hospice patients, certainly people with great pain, bony pain, you know, they might be on 15 or 20 milligrams of oxycodone. So it's not that just because they're old, they couldn't need the same milligram dose. In general, I would recommend uh, using six-hour dosing to prevent the stacking up. Yeah. You know, six or eight. And certainly with certain longer-acting medications, certainly there's a benefit if someone's needing repetitive doses of short-acting medication to convert them to like an MS content where they're getting the medication twice a day or even in a situation where a family member's participating and giving them the medication in the morning and at night. The confusion and short-acting opiates can be a, a bad combination. Great question. Other questions? Yes. Um, one slide you had a Percocet for shingle pain. Is that yes. effective? For yes, pain? it's very effective. I mean, when we have people have like the acute outbreak of shingles and we're not necessarily dealing with the whole nociceptive pain at that point. Um, I'll use Percocet to kind of get them through. Usually I try to see people with shingles like once a week, uh, particularly elders, because kind of kind of keep assessing their pain. You know, they know it hurts. They don't necessarily want to complain about it a lot, but um, they might need oxycodone 
like five milligrams four times a day for the first week or so, work week to 10 days, then usually they can kind of taper it down. If the pain is persisting, particularly if they came in late and didn't end up on an antiviral, at that point I would start usually gabapentin. Great question. Other questions? Yes. How do you treat pain in someone who lives home, maybe has mild cognitive impairment, but lives alone, and maybe has pain related to a fall? That seems complicated. Yes. You don't want to increase the likelihood that they would fall, especially if they live alone. Right. Well, I'm a big believer in Tylenol. I mean, Tylenol is great for all these soft tissue pains uh, or bone pains, any kind of post-fall pain. I think it's actually very interesting that they're going to be putting people on IV Tylenol right after their uh, orthopedic procedures. So we try to put them on a regular scheduled Tylenol, not just Tylenol when I think about it. Try to use the idea that the, they want to kind of be on the program to kind of get ahead of the pain. Um, yep, and I want to encourage those people with the fall to stay mobile, stay active. The worst thing they could do is just sit in the chair and get home PT. I mean, get them moving, et cetera. Yes? Um, you mentioned about NSAIDs. Yes. So a lot of elders are on NSAIDs, but you've kind of acted like that's not a great idea. So it's what's not it, a great idea. So where do you draw the line, or where are there exceptions, or how does that work? Okay, I could go to my NSAID slide. I wanted to allow a good amount of time for questioning, so that's why I. Um, Okay, NSAIDs. They have adverse effects on blood pressure, renal function, and heart failure. We really should not give them with aspirin. So a lot of elders are already on aspirin. And when you tell them that, that makes them kind of like, okay, I can't do the two together. The NSAIDs themselves can cause confusion. So for people who are worried about losing their mind, that's another you know, reason not to take them. Occasionally we do give them with the gastric protective agent. The risk, obviously, is for GI bleeding, in particular, big GI bleeds with no real warning. And that scares people, too, because who wants to come in with a big GI bleed? But sometimes we will do it with omeprazole or other gastric protective agent. And um, sometimes to get that inset effect, I'll encourage using a topical. We now have diclofenac gel, which can be nice to rub on a body part. And for people who, I have some people who use a little Celebrex every now and then, or you know, we might just do it for a short period of time, but I think the years of, we used to have people on, you know, take your Vioxx, take your, um, you know, any number of things for your osteoarthritis. For osteoarthritis, we emphasize Tylenol first. Yeah, there are people with some rheumatologic conditions who end up on NSAIDs, but even there, they're using other things like azathioprine and other ways to try to minimize long-term NSAIDs. So sometimes it's just education about the side effects that can be enough to shut, move people away. Great question. Any other questions? Yes? Does, uh, I see a lot more oxycodone tabs used than MSIR tabs. Mm -hmm. Is that because it causes less confusion than the morphine, or is it just because of the marketing? Of the I think it's the marketing, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, I have not been repeating the questions for the audio, but I think it, it, I think it does relate to the marketing. I think they're essentially equivalent. Sometimes you say morphine, and people are like, oh, I don't want to take morphine. But if you make the, oh, well, try some oxycodone, they're like, oh, maybe they haven't heard of it, and they might be willing to try it. But then again, um, small amounts, you know, I never, with an initial prescription, will prescribe more than 20 pills. I mean, people end up with these stockpiles of opiates at home. And we know that in terms of abuse of opiates, it all starts from the doctor's office. I mean, most people are not stealing their opiates from 
drugstores. They're getting them from friends, you know, medicine bottles in the home. Any home where there's teenagers coming in, young people, they have to keep, I, you know, I really tell people up front that those, they're responsible for keeping those opiates safe. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, every, everyone. I know. Thank you.